Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, the market is also a lot about, or, or demand is a lot about authenticity and, you know, I don't know, bespoke or small production or handmade. I'm going to throw all these words out, um, which are really all little minds sitting in front of the consumer waiting to go off and not necessarily to yield a very um, satisfying experience. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's the more, the more, the, the, the mind of the person who comes up to me and asks me those questions is open mm-hmm. and the less predispositions they have towards what it has to be, um, then generally the more, the richer the experience they have sitting at the bar, you know? And, and I almost make a, a kind of a point of, of just taking people many notches down below. You know, it's not about what I think they can afford or not afford. It's about start here. You know, yeah. and, and, and I will tell you, I've had, um, wow, you know, we've talked before, so you know how my mind trips around. Um, you know, I, I had some guys come in to the bar one night and they were, they were really, really nice folks. And they ordered a few flights um, and they asked me for a bunch of recommendations. And in the context, uh, in, as we were talking, you know, they, they spoke a lot about, well, we really come from a wine background and wine and wine and wine. And then I was watching the way a couple of these guys were drinking the whiskey. And I, and I stopped and I said, so when you drink a really nice Cabernet, do you just pick it up and slug it the way you just did that whiskey? And, and he shopped, he stopped. And he said, no. And I said, well, maybe you, can I, can I get you to spend a little bit more time smelling this and, and looking at it and before you have a taste of it and see what thing and you know it was like a light bulb went on in this guy's head and his experience of everything else i poured after that went was much richer and i'm not saying everything i poured for him he liked more importantly he started spending time with it so that's another thing is teaching people how to spend time with the product in front of them um and also not to uh, yeah and also not to equate dollars with uh and i i'll stop after this because you probably have another question you want to ask a lot of people would come into the bar and say they try a few things and that would be pouring them things that are really quite inexpensive, but I think are very good. And then they'll say, well, what could you pour me for like between 35 and $50? And so they'll give me a number. And I started to realize it took a long time to realize they're expecting that because they've now doubled or tripled the price of what I'm pouring them, that they're going to have double or triple the satisfaction out of what I pour them. And that was something that really, like I didn't understand the throwing the number out, the price for a long time. And then I realized that's what they're thinking. And I would teach the bartenders is to be careful of that because they're thinking that there's this three times as delicious whiskey that you can pour for them because it costs $60 instead of $20. And we know that, that that's not true, but they're not in that place right now. You know, it's like buying a better piece of steak. They think they're going to get, you know, a better cut of meat at a $60 steak versus a $20 steak. That might, in fact, play out in a lot of cases. But with whiskey, 
I'm, I'm shrugging my shoulders. Uh, no, not necessarily. You know, one uh, a sixty dollar whiskey may cost sixty bucks because it's 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 only a couple of bottles of it, and so it's allocated and rare. But it's not necessarily a a better whiskey. So. Wow. No, there's definitely a lot to chew on. Um, as far as the whiskey universe at large, obviously there's large players, you know, very well known and you know huge portfolios. And then there's all these craft distilleries that are popping up. Literally, I read that um, there's two licenses for craft distillation being issued every working day, yeah. which is an overwhelming statistic to me. And a lot of those distillers pursue whiskey. So what do we do as consumers in this case when there's so many choices? How do we even begin? And what is the real difference between those large corporations in your mind and their prowess. And it, you already mentioned they make a lot of high quality products because a lot of people associate yeah. artisanal boutique local with quality as opposed to corporate in some respect. Well, it's probably one of the most complicated questions to answer. Um, so first of all, something that people don't like to hear, but is just an unavoidable fact is, in the end of the day, distillation is an industrial process. Okay, I mean, I, at this point, if we were sitting next to each other, I'd take my phone out and I'd show you the video of the still, the smaller still in operation at Jim Beam in Claremont, where if I didn't tell you it was making whiskey, you'd probably think they were making gasoline. Um, well, it's, 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 it's a, it's a still. I mean, I mean, gasoline's a lot more complicated to make, but the point is, is that it's a big industrial machine, and they make a lot of this stuff very quickly. Um, people, people are they think there's something to be said for this smaller operation, and the answer is it's it's a lot harder to make something really good on a small still, and there's a lot of reasons for that, um, but it's also there there aren't a lot of people who are going to turn out to be really inspired distillers. And by that, I mean that they're going to have some insight or affinity into the process of distillation, whereby they make something apart from its scale being small and handmade that is appreciably better than what uh, the distillate that's made at Lawrenceburg, Indiana, that you can buy by the barrel and put your own label on is going to be. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, um, it's a really, it's a tough place to find a, that you can do it better than the big guys when it comes down to making the whiskey. And you can have a good story about how you bought the corn and how the grain and the water, wow. um, you can do all of that. But at the end of the day, you're competing against, you know, I mean, <laughs> you're competing against the product that's very highly, I want to, the word's going to have not a good connotation here. It's, it's very, it's not that it's refined. It's, it's been, it's been streamlined down to a very like repeatable process. And that repeatability is very powerful. But what happens afterwards is where a lot more, a lot of stuff really gets interesting because it's in aging the whiskey that a lot of its characteristics change and show up. And that's, the problem with craft or the, the 
what's the right word? Problem's not the way to put it. The challenge with craft has been that it's often very young and it's often not aged with a lot of thought about what that means um, and what happens during aging. And so all that said, if your palate has been cut on young, um, you know, young whiskey, aged a certain way to a certain degree, you might really enjoy that whiskey very much. And so you'll go into the bar and you'll ask for, I think we just lost you. We did. <laughs> okay, let's see. I think we're still recording, however. Hmm. Let's pause. We're chatting about the large corporate representations um, of whiskey producers relative to uh, what the boutique producers have to offer. And right. I find it absolutely fascinating, your assessment of just the production yeah oh yeah you're really i'm you're very broken up um um and we haven't talked about the economies of scale and what that well that's yeah the, the, yeah that's the the, the big the little distilleries fight against that really Yeah, I can't hear you at all. Okay. Yeah. Distilleries make extraordinarily good product at rather significant scale. And they're located in this part of the world where there's, um, there's really good water, which is why they're there in part. And there's also a really great climate. And they lucked out a lot in a lot of ways because, and this is why I want to, I, maybe this will be clearer. So, you know, they come out of prohibition and they're rebuilding and a bunch of distilleries, four of them in particular, um, came out in really good shape and um, were ready to jump back in. And they started rebuilding whiskey stocks and they, they, um, they filled these warehouses up and as I said, they had great water, they had really good stills, um, they had the knowledge to make all this stuff well, and they had this environment. And the environment is more, probably the most important thing because what goes on, the, so all of these big distilleries really make only a couple, three different products off the still. And everything else that creates all the different brands is a function of where they're aged and for how long and how they're blended. Okay. And as, as some people like, or to, to, to borrow an analogy from wine, that 
those warehouses and their, the way they face and their height and where the barrels sit in them is almost like a terroir. Wow. So barrels that are sitting low and cool and barrels that are sitting high and hot, even filled with the same whiskey in the same day, after six years, the whiskey will taste very different in those barrels. It will not be the same. So apart from the scale that the big distilleries operate at, they have these warehouses and they have these little microclimates, whatever you want to call them. And they're able to make lots of really interesting different products. You can still hear me? I can still hear you. Okay. So now let's go back to the, the craft distillers. So the craft distilleries, they have small stills. The stills, um, so if you ask someone honestly who runs a small still, um, and let's just, let's just pick a scale, like a still that's in a, on a concrete pad in a, you know, a, a warehouse complex, a, you know, an industrial space in an in a industrial park someplace near Napa, okay? And, and they've got the still in there and they've got a bunch of racks that contain barrels and it's all one environment. So first thing is, is the still doesn't make a lot of whiskey, so they spend a lot of time cleaning it. Every time they restart the still up again, it's a, it's, it's a possibility that the still is gonna operate slightly differently than it did the time before. So there's a lot of overhead to, to achieve consistency that the big guys don't have. Um, and, and, and small distillers would be disingenuous if they didn't say they didn't struggle with that. But, but let's assume that they know how to run their stills and they don't mind cleaning them constantly and they can get them to behave consistently time and time again. Um, they're gonna fill these barrels of whiskey and they're gonna put them in the racks in that space where everything else is. And there's not a lot of environmental change in that space. So the barrels are gonna sit there and they're, not they're all really in the same climate. So at the end of two years or four years or even six years, um, that whiskey is going to have undergone aging that's very different than similar whiskey on different floors in warehouses in Kentucky. Um, and I could digress a lot into the mechanics of what happens through the seasons and with temperature and humidity changes. But if you don't have those shifts and changes, the whiskey sits, it's very quiescent. And a lot of aging has to do with the activity of the barrel and through the seasons, through different um, uh, times of the year. And um, that, that was recognized all the way back in the um, 19th century um, there were warehouses built in Kentucky out of brick with steam in them. I mean, they, they, um, they had uh, pipes with steam and they would temperature cycle the, the warehouses um, to, to um, simulate more seasonal changes through the year. Because the thinking was is that, that would, the whiskey would age faster. Um, and it, it kind of does and it kind of doesn't. But the point is, is that they've known this for a long time. So small distilleries really fight against um, their scale and they don't have the, um, the aging conditions that you would see in a Kentucky or an Indiana warehouse. And for better or worse, those big distilleries have set the benchmarks for what a whiskey should taste like after four, six, eight, 12 or more years. So 
Does that kind of give you some, some answer to that? Yeah. Absolutely. So what do you feel is going to continue to happen as we, you know, move forward? Do you think the craft distilleries will continue to grow at the same rate as what we've experienced in the last few years? Or do you think they will just come to a realization that it's, it's a fruitless exercise in some ways, even though, you know, there's that emotional attachment, but the practicalities are just too much to handle? Well, I think, I think as, as, you know, vanity businesses, people will, will do it again and again, because as long as there's, as long as people have cash to do it and it's their love and desire, they're going to go do it. Um, you know, again, how many of those people are really going to have some kind of great insight into how to run their stills or think of something really interesting to do in terms of the aging? And there are, you know, Kentucky is not the only place you could do. I mean, you know, for years I've wanted people to age whiskey by the ocean. I mean, I've, I've wanted, I mean, they do. They age whiskey in Scotland by the ocean. Um, I've really thought it'd be great to age bourbon by the ocean. It'll be something different. Um, so I think the craft will continue, um, but um, there's a new set of players out there that didn't exist until about five years ago, and they are doing quite well, even in the midst of all of um, the uncertainty um, everywhere else in the, uh, in the beverage alcohol business. Um, there are a lot of very well-funded, medium-sized distilleries. And by medium, I mean they are an order of magnitude less. They, they have stills that are an order of magnitude smaller than, say, Beam or Jack Daniels, which is Brown Foreman or Heaven Hill. But those stills are at least an order of magnitude bigger than most craft stills. So they're sitting pretty much smack in the middle. And, and they are making good whiskey and a good price point at a much smaller scale than the big guys, but they've learned their lessons about scale. Remember I talked about how much harder it is to do it when you're using a little still. Um, and they've got great warehousing. Um, they're really changing the landscape a lot. And it becomes a harder business case to start up your own distillery when there's more and more of these middle-sized guys. And a lot of these middle-sized guys, their business model is in fact um, doing contract distilling for other brands. So that's a new thing going out there in the market. And we're seeing a bunch of it already. Um, I'm trying to think of a couple of brands that have shown up. There's a place called Bardstown Bourbon Company, which is outside of Bardstown in Kentucky and they are very well funded. One of their partners is Constellation, which I'm sure you recognize the name. Um, they, and they are already distilling for several well-established smaller brands. Like for example, they are distilling for, um, um, for um, uh, uh, I'm gonna say Old Scout, for, um, <laughs> what are these guys, Smooth Ambler. Um, in West Virginia, okay? And, and Smooth Ambler has their own stills, but as far as scaling goes, it's a much better deal for them to, to get someone else to make their whiskey for them. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's hard to beat that. 
um, and there's a lot of people are turning to these guys, and not just Bardstown Bourbon Company. Um, uh, not some, someone not doing contract distilling, but working at scale, the kind of scale I'm talking about is um, Wyoming whiskey in Wyoming. Okay, um, there's a Woodenville up in Washington. So these are small distilleries, but they are much larger than most craft distilleries already. And they're, they've got big stills, relatively speaking, and they've got nicely built warehouses that go through um, uh, extremes or go through enough extremes to drive aging in a way that's understandable. Um, and these guys are selling their whiskey for a very reasonable price today. So it's going to be tough if you're a little guy. <laughs> yeah, it sure sounds like it. In terms of just the actual supply, I've read a few years ago, actually multiple sources stated that there's a shortage of whiskey. Is that still the case? And if so, what do you think has the greatest chance, which particular niche has the greatest chance of success? So I think, I think the big, so let's, let's see, the, the big distilleries had been, you know, we'll roll back here a little bit into history. So coming out of uh, World War II, heading into Korean conflict, uh, measuring everything by wars, um, American palates start changing, actually global palates start changing away from uh, wood age spirits. And we see the ascendancy of and primacy of vodka. And by the mid 70s, there's been pretty much a collapse of uh, the, the world whiskey market and, and American whiskey basically is it's stagnant, nothing's going on. And the distilleries that came out of prohibition lived through that and they lived with that really until the mid 90s, there started to be some stirrings and which is coincident with the cocktail, you know, revolution, the cocktail renaissance that we talked about earlier. Um, and so, so even though demand for, for whiskey starts going up globally, late 90s, through the aughts, into the teens, they're very shy because there's good corporate memory of how they got screwed in the, in the 70s. I mean, they were, they, were, they were selling. The last thing you can do with your whiskey when you can't sell it anymore is you can sell it to a company that will turn it into alcohol. I mean, into, into ethanol. <laughs> so the analogy would be today would be you can sell it off for hand sanitizer. Um, and, and that's what they did. That was the, 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 that's what happened to a lot of aging whiskey stocks, um, through the, um, uh, seventies into the eighties. Um, some of these guys survived by selling in Japan because there was a, a lot of interest in whiskey that sustained certain brands. Um, you probably read in the Four Roses piece about how they, they, they moved the entire bourbon operation into Japan because of that. Um, right. It's owned by a Japanese company. It's not a coincidence. Um, so now we let's come back to, so demand is going up and up and up for American whiskey. I have a job at curating a, a whiskey program in San Francisco at this point. And meanwhile, everyone is waiting for the big distilleries to kind of get into, get into gear. They're not increasing their output. And they're not increasing the output because they're, they're gun shy. 
no one, and just in the last 24 to 36 months, the distilleries, the big distilleries started capitalizing again and started building additional distillery capability and more importantly, additional warehouses. And when I was in Kentucky in the fall, 2019, everywhere I went, everyone is building warehouses, everywhere. And the companies that specialize in building these warehouses are fully booked and they're hiring people like gangbusters. And it's at Bardstown Bourbon Company, they told me the only limitation we have right now on, on whiskey is where to put it. Because they're not even operating, they're still at, still at full capacity yet because they don't have a warehouse, enough warehouses. As soon as the warehouses are inspected and done, they're filling them. So this is what's been going on for, for three years at different scales, but the last 18 months really went crazy. So there's a ton of whiskey sitting in Kentucky and in Indiana right now. And, and <laughs> what little bit of hand sanitizer they're making, I suspect they're not touching their aging whiskey stocks. Um, they're probably making it from other sources if they have to make it at all from other, other aging products. Um, so I think that we're going to see, we're not going to, we're not threatened by, um, by the current situation. Uh, there's not going to be a shortage. Um, what there will be, there will be less craft whiskey. There's no question. There will be a lot of, a lot of brands will fold, um, which is a, a thing that, that will be felt locally much more so than, than globally. No, I, it sounds like there's an interesting phenomenon happening. Everything is cyclical, right? So the cycle is coming around to greater maybe supply than demand on the grand scale. Yeah, I think, I think that um, there will be a lot, of, a lot more supply. Um, there'll definitely be, I mean, the, it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm sitting here struggling a little bit because people who are going to capitalize whiskey brands and by that uh, let me let me let me let me put the word someone who wants to develop a brand and realizes that it's better you're better off buying the whiskey than making it yourself if they've got the capital to do that they're 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 gonna go and buy the whiskey and they're gonna have it made for that they're gonna have it made there's not gonna be an issue for them so at the, at the larger, at the mid to large scale, I don't think there's a lot of change going to occur. Um, what's really going to be weird is how much of the harder to get whiskey was only available through uh, on-premise, that is through bars and restaurants, and now those channels don't exist. And so that product is now being diverted into off-premise, and that's a really interesting shift, and I'm not sure how that's going to play out. So in theory, the bottle that, you know, there's probably, there's probably since, since hard water shut down in April and March, there's probably been, I would say, you know, half a dozen to a dozen limited release items that have come out that we're not going to, we're not going to get because we're not there to take them. And they will probably go into retail. So more of these hard to get whiskeys will wind up in private collections, which means less of it will be available for the general public to try and consume. It's kind of an interesting possibility. Um, yeah, 
No, it absolutely sounds like in some ways it's better for the consumer because they're able now to collect things that are quite rare and special uh, with a greater chance of success. Having said yeah. that, you know, obviously consuming it in the context of a bar with somebody that can really illuminate the history and the special characteristics seems like a better better way of using this limited amount of distillate. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a really, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I haven't gone around and talked to my, you know, we, we at, at the bar we, at, at Hardwater, we talked about, you know, our hardcore whiskey nerds, yeah. you know. I mean, I mean, I had guests who their, their private collections were just, you know, <laughs> my eyes would pop out when I would see pictures of what they had. Um, you know, and these are, pe these are people who have the, the fiscal wherewithal to collect. And in many cases, they also had the palate to, to appreciate it. I mean, they were, they, were, they were not just guys who could afford to buy the bottles. They were really seriously interested in, in what the products tasted like. And they were, they were, they were great guys. Um, I haven't asked them what they're doing recently. Because um, remember, there, a lot of them are isolated now, too. Um, you know, they can't, they can't invite their buddies over to, you know, I mean, I knew people who would think nothing of flying from three parts of the United States to meet at a friend's house in Austin for someone's birthday for the weekend. And they'd all bring bottles from their whiskey bunkers and they would all drink, you know, top shelf, I mean, really super top shelf stuff. Um, the conclusion of this interview can be found in the next podcast, already available for your download. Thanks again for tuning in to the official podcast of Pal Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson.